Welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. This week we get to the second part of my conversation with Matthew Curtis. But before we get started, the Beer Edge Podcast is brought to you by Arrived. When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, your focus is on superb service and delicious beer. Point of sale is just a transactional formality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the only mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system designed specifically for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity. Your managers will love the world-class support team. Your guests will love the seamless ordering experience and probably order more beer because of it. Save time, money, and headaches with Arrived. This week, we continue our conversation with beer writer Matthew Curtis. If you missed part one of our discussion, I recommend you go back and give it a listen. In that episode, Matt and I discussed his work with Pellicle, his online beer, wine, and cider magazine, how he developed his voice as a writer and a podcaster, and about his profile of St. Mars of the Desert in Sheffield, England. We also discussed important and sensitive subjects, such as balancing work while maintaining your mental health. In this episode, we compare the U.S. and U.K. beer scenes, discuss Matt's excellent new book, Modern British Beer, and talk about how joy is the central message and lens through which he translates the world of beer to his audiences. We also discuss how Pete Brown robbed him, his words, at the recent British Guild of Beer Writers Awards, and how he feels about awards generally, considering his recent experiences. We also talk about his plans for the future of Pellicle, and as a writer. Here's the second half of my conversation with beer writer, author, and publisher, Matt Curtis. You have mentioned uh, several times your dad living in the States, and specifically in, in Fort Collins, and that he's now a U.S. citizen. Um, as someone from outside of the United States, it's in, you also referenced earlier just kind of being, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but it was sort of being enamored with the U.S. beer scene and excited about it. And, and, and I don't want to say it was that you thought that the B- UK beer scene was tired or, or just for whatever, whatever it was, your connection seemed to be the reverse of what we necessarily have as beer writers in the state. Sometimes we look around, at, you know, maybe we're, we're old and, and jaded, but we look around at these breweries and, and things like the hazy IPA trend. And, and we kind of long for the tradition of Europe. Uh, you know, we, I, I know quite a few beer writers who all, you know, they're, spending time in Prague or in Pilsen or in Munich or in Cologne and Dusseldorf. These are the places, you know, let alone in the UK having proper Cascale. This for us are the, are the quintessential founding beer experiences. And we, we long for a tradition that is not our own uh, while we sort of eschew the local frivolity and experimentation and, and envelope pushing that is the American beer scene and has been for 20 years. As someone outside of the US, I'm curious just to hear your thoughts on the state of the American beer scene. And I understand that is kind of asking you to paint with a really broad brush, but I'm just kind of curious as to what are your impressions of the states when it comes to beer? The grass is always greener, right? Oh, always. Um, uh, yeah, true. But um, I don't know what the word is. I, I know if someone's obsessed with the UK, they call it an Anglophile. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's a, like an Americophile or something like that. But US beer culture has always been fascinating to me. Um, you know, it's the home of the, the majority of hot production now in, in, in the world. 
is in the Pacific Northwest. Citra is the most cultivated hop, and and you know its signature is in so many beers. It, that that's changed beer around the world, and and that fascinates me. Um, I tell you what, uh, my view at the moment though is. Um, American beer culture has always been more professional and more business minded. And it, as a res- and Americans are naturally more entrepreneurial than Brits. The way we're educated is different. In the, U- in the UK, we're still told to get our head down, get a job. We're not encouraged to start businesses. The, the, the whole process of starting a business and, and, and all of that is, is uh, needlessly complicated. And, and I can see why it, it would put people off. Um, but in the US, people seem to have more of that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that is one of the reasons why you have this incredibly vast beer culture. And you also have gems like Sierra Nevada, which is bigger than any UK brewery. I think it's three times the size of Fuller's, but we still treat it. And you know, I say we, because I do as well, as this um, sort of romantic brewer. I mean, their beers are wonderful. I've right. got a six pack of celebration waiting at my local uh, liquor store that I'm going to pick up in a couple of days because just didn't have enough of that when I was in the US. But um, what I, I was just in Fort Collins and I haven't been able to visit because although my dad is a citizen, I am not. And the border was closed because of COVID. And as soon as it opened, I, I hopped on the plane to Denver. And um, what I'm seeing is, and I've read, you know, I read Josh Bernstein's article in the New York Times about bars closing, Falling Rock is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the mayor of Old Town in Fort Collins has the owner has sold it to a new owner, um, and the vibe in there is a little a little different. Um, and that the vibe was a, a bit different. It's the first time I went to some bars and half the taps were off. And um, you know, there's a lot of beer in the U.S. There are some still some great stories. But while I was in Fort Collins, a brewery closed down in the two weeks I was there, and it's not the first one. There's definitely hardships for breweries that have not managed to carve out their, you know, maybe went in a bit misty eyed to this booming craft beer scene and there just wasn't the market that they were promised. It's incredibly challenging. And I don't think the UK is actually at this point of what the US is at where, where there's just, there's almost too much beer. You know, you go right. into these liquor stores and pick up bottles on the shelf and check, you know, something like celebration. It's great to see that flying out, but what about all the other IPAs that people just aren't picking up instead? Um, and that's, so I'm seeing this kind of like period of attrition, but I'm an optimist and I, you know, I have so much, had so much great beer while I was out there. And, um, and the, the, the level of quality generally is incredibly high and I know I, you know, you read articles about all these, you know, that IPAs dominate tap lists, but I haven't struggled in my experience. And this, this is very through Colorado, which has Northern Colorado has a really great beer scene. It's very much a, you know, it's beer country. Uh, you, you can get such a different variety of styles. I mean, one of my favorite breweries in Fort Collins is, is Zwei that just makes, I go there every time just for the, some of the best lagers being, being mm-hmm. made in the in the US um and you've got cohesion down in in Denver so i see variety and um really interesting stuff and those who really apply themselves and and are very mindful in, in how they approach beer seem to be doing incredibly well um but there there are you know the days of maybe the old american brew pub you know you know what i'm talking about where you have oh, the, yes. the blueberry wheat 
and the red yeah. uh, Irish red and and uh, you have your amber, your blonde, your you know you've got all the colors exactly. And I think that that era is over, and um, the market is you know. But I also think you probably can't open a brewery and just start making New England IPAs because that's been done now. Like that's kind of fulfilled. Um, people people's habits are constantly shifting, Like the, the pandemic has seen it for me shift to comfort and familiarity again, which is why we talk about Sierra Nevada and Allagash uh, in the way we do, because that they provide that familiarity in spades. And, and every time you open one of their beers, it's an exceptional experience. And I think with 9,000 breweries, if you're opening a beer and you, you can buy a six pack of Allagash white, and you know, that's going to be six bottles of pure joy, or you could, take a chance on a random new brewery and it might be disappointing. Why would you do that when you can yeah. just get something that's going to stimulate a positive response? And that is what's going to influence uh, the U S and, and the UK, which is, you know, also grown to over 2000 breweries um, over the next few years. Yeah. It's, it's as someone who's been writing about craft beer for a long time. It's very difficult to sort of keep up with, you know, you, you used to be that, I would know 1,500 craft breweries in this country. I knew something about not all of them, but quite a few of them. Now with 10,000, let alone those from import brands, it it seems almost next to impossible. Um, and this is, I've written you know a couple of books and they are generally out of date the moment that they come out to print, but you yourself have written uh, a book. Uh, you've written two, but this one in particular, we're discussing in modern British beer. What was the, what was just simply, what was the idea behind it? I think the best way to describe modern British beer is if I've been writing bit about beer for 10 years and, and modern British beer is the summation of that experience of, of writing about beer for 10 years. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do that as a, as a, a fresh wet behind the ears beer writer. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that Cascale features um, very heavily in it. And it's published by Camera, the campaign for Real Ale. They have a, a publishing department. And um, it's quite bold for them because it also talks about a lot of beer that don't really fit their definition of Real Ale, as well as plenty of beer that does. But it, for me, it's a summation of my perspective of where beer in the UK is at right now. And I tell this story by giving a little sprinkling of history at the start, very potted history. I make no claim for it to be a history book and say that much in the book. Then I talk about how I give a bit of philosophy, like how I, this is how I approach beer. This is my experience of beer. I relate to my dad's experience of beer right at the beginning of the book, because that's where mine, my passion for beer comes from. And I felt that was important, but then I use 86 different examples of beers as basically a case study. The idea is it is a narrative book. You read it from cover to cover, but it's broken down into region. And then in each region, I selected a handful of beers, which was very challenging. There's 86 beers and which I had to choose from a couple of thousand breweries. But for me, each one uh, tells a different story of beer in that region and ties together once you get to the end where I feel beer is at at the moment in the UK, which is where it's going, nobody knows. It's, it's you know, in pandemic or not, it was had this explosion of growth, which almost happened even faster than the US because it saw what was happening in the US. It had to catch up. Um, and then once it did, the brewers who have invested in that have gone, hang on, haven't we got this really amazing beer culture all along? 
Um, so you're seeing all these new breweries that came out five or six years ago with New England IPAs that are now like releasing, here's our cask core range. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe these breweries have expanded and realized that cask beer has a faster turnover than uh, making IPAs and lagers. Um, or maybe they just love cascale. Maybe it's a probably a combination of the two. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to summarize my experience. And it's a very raw book in, in that it's very me. It's very much my perspective. And I don't make any illusion that, that it's not at any point in the book. Um, but I'm very lucky to have had this position uh, where I've been writing about beer professionally for a number of years. And it's given me the chance to really think about British beer. And I've, you know, we've seen acquisitions. Um, we've seen so many openings and closures. Um, and it's kind of a summation of that, but it's definitely an optimistic, positive stance. Uh, you know, I, I, I am optimistic about British beer and hopefully when you get to the end of the book, you, you feel optimistic and, and hopefully thirsty. The, and that is definitely the case, at least for, for my review, the, the sort of lens that you write this book through and, and you referenced it, you know, just a moment ago, but also within the, you know, just the, the, the broader conversations we've had today is one sort of centered on the concept of joy, uh, which is not necessarily one that I would personally, you know, personally associate with craft beer in terms of my first instinct. I tend to come from a background of a, of a journalist and someone who is more critical by nature, both in professionally and just personally. I, I tend to love a beer that is off. I love something that's wrong with beer because I like to try to work backwards and figure out where things have gone wrong. And, 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 and bad beers bring me often bring me great joy. And maybe that is something that is said something about my dark, terrible character inside. But it was sort of a, a revelation to sort of read this through the perspective. And, and frankly, I, you know, from someone who follows your writing, joy isn't always necessarily because it is very raw. It's not necessarily joy that jumps off the page in the form of pure, unadulterated optimism, because I think your perspective is one that is experienced is certainly not naive. Um, so how, you know, how do you frame this, this book um, through the concept of joy and how do you sort of define that? And how does that, that work for you in terms of just your experiencing of craft beer? I think that's a really good question. I think a lot of my writing has what the biggest change in my writing over the last few years is that there was a point when I was writing for the industry and I wanted brewers and brewery owners and bar owners to read my stuff and be like, Oh yeah, yeah. You put your finger on the pulse. And in more recent years, I I've wanted to, I've been less worried about what the industry thinks and more interested in what the people who buy beer and drink beer think and, and how I feel about beer as, cause I, you're right. I think about beer as I try not to use the term journalist because I feel like a, a proper journalist has a has a beat and um, and I'm, I'm I'm a writer. Um, that's that's how I would describe myself. And but I want you know I get to write for people who drink beer, but I'm also very aware that most people who drink beer don't really want to read about it. So sure. for me, I'm like, well, why why not? What you know, you obviously enjoy drinking about it. Why aren't you interested in 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 the culture? So modern British beer is written from the perspective of um, the person who enjoys drinking beer, who, you know, who finishes work at 5 PM and then they sit at a bar or they sit at home and they open a beer 
where they get served a beer. And then that moment, that first sip is that feeling of, of relaxation. And it, but for me, if, if then you say, if you had a pint that had diastole in it, um, maybe this isn't the best example or something that was wrong with it. And it's something that didn't let you switch off 100%. That for me, I'm interested in that. And maybe there's, a, there's, there's future articles and books in that. But for me, the, the, the philosophy of modern British beer was that the whole point of drinking these great beers and why we should be excited about all these new beers and breweries that have emerged in the US, the UK, um, not in the US in context of the book, but just in context of beer in general, is that it should be, you know, that's why most people drink beer, because it is something that helps them relax. It's something that um, that sparks joy. And But that experience of, of joy can feel very different with people. I mean, some people will go to the pub and they love beer, but they don't talk about it or read about it, but they drink nice beer and they sit with friends in a pub and it's always by their side. Maybe they'll have a sip and go, oh, that, that's good. But then that's as much as they'll think about it. But then there's people like me and you who might go to a bar and order a beer and, and then take it apart bit by bit. And I do that. Um, and I've, I've spent plenty of time being critical about beer, but the point of this book was to try and build in a sense of beer and it's, I think writing it has completely changed my perspective on beer or not changed it or made me um, mindfully look at how I approach beer and has changed my approach because I'm like, yeah, I, I, I want to drink this beer um, because, because it's joyful, because it, it, it makes me happy. Um, and that's, that's where it came from. Um, that does not mean there isn't space for proper criticism. I think the UK desperately needs beer writing that is more critical, um, but it's, it, and there are people starting to do that, but um, at the moment you, you don't want to make people run scared of, of mm. that. Um, I think uh, what I'm seeing is beer writing is becoming more and more established and there's more books coming out, camera uh, have had a great year they've produced several really interesting books and johnny garrett pete brown um roger Protz has just had a new book published and the, uh, as beer writing becomes more mature and I, and I mean this in a uk context specifically hopefully that will give the opportunity to be more critical and the industry needs to be prepared to accept this because what i find generally is is if you are particularly critical um, that that's seen as the drawbridge slamming shut while well, you can't speak to us anymore because you've said this about us, True. which we've seen a lot with, with the, um, the, the, the me too, the Brian Allen stuff. And, and some, like we saw a lot of things change in the UK and lots of people stepped down uh, in the U S sorry, but not in the UK. I think one business owner stood down um, of, of multiple uh, call outs and reports. So the, the UK is still not prepared to answer its critics I, I guess you've made me think now like I, I and it's something I do think about um how do how do we approach that in a way that doesn't make people want to just slam the drawbridge shut that's maybe the next the next chapter in British beer writing and I think maybe to put this in a more practical context and it's something I think you had discussed on the your recent podcast the inclusion the decision to include Brewdog in the book um, you know, I suppose for some, this might be controversial, you know, BrewDog obviously has a, and you've written about BrewDog in the past and clearly have thoughts and ideas about it. Uh, as someone who has seen it from afar and largely read about it, as opposed to 
uh, investigating because it's it's pretty far from my beat. I, I'm curious as to your take on it and your process for coming to include them. Um, because you know, for those who don't know, there have been certain recent controversies, whether it relates to workplace and behavioral issues or a particularly aggressive form of marketing uh, and self-promotion that has sort of defined the brand, you know, for as long as it has operated. You know, Brewdog is not without its its set of controversies, but also it's sort of inextricable from the development of modern British beer. Uh, it it just is, you know, I remember you know, meeting James in Boston in a bar, if I don't even know, it would have been a year or two after he had started and he had just started shipping to the States and he was pretty quiet and pretty reserved, which was not really kind of, uh, you know, along the lines of the brash uh, outlook that the the brand had given, which was, you know, made very much in the model of Greg Cook and Stone Brewing. Uh, but talk to me about your deci- your decision to sort of you know put Brewdog in here, and what you know how do you contextualize its place in modern British beer with you know everything we know about it and its history? You you almost answered that question in the question. I couldn't have written that book without including them, and and I I looked at what it might look like without them in it. So there are there are breweries I took out. Um, some examples of Beavertown. Camden Town and Magic Rock, who are three breweries that were all acquired, but they definitely followed that Brewdog model. They weren't adding anything. You know, I thought about it deeply and they didn't really add anything interesting and unique that other breweries weren't also adding. And the whole point was to have less, a less is more approach if I'm taking that case study approach. But with Brewdog, they really did change everything, no matter how you feel about them. And I feel strongly about them. I've I've reported on them um, for a couple of UK publications about all these accusations of toxic workplace culture. And that was happening, you know, after I'd submitted the manuscript. And I laid awake at night um, thinking about that. And then one great thing I had with this book is I had two editors that were wonderful who made me take a much more objective approach and think about it because there was one phone call. I rang them and I was like, we've got to take them out. I can't, can't publish this book with them in it. And, and Alan Murphy was like, this book wouldn't really make sense without Brewdog though, would it? And I'm like, no, not really. One thing I'm thankful of is uh, in my choice to interview uh, one of the founders, I interviewed Martin Dickey instead of James Watt and um, they have a very different approach yes and I hadn't spoken I'm very lucky to have interviewed them both a lot over the years um, but I had a good hour on zoom with Martin during the research time of the book and he talked about what they were doing in terms of sustainability and his team and what he does and it was a very different conversation to what you see part of me wishes more people would see that side of the business but that's that's not what they're like unfortunately right. But um, they, yeah, Brewdog changed everything in the UK. Um, and sometimes people say, well, if they didn't come along, then someone else would have would have done it instead. And I don't think anyone would have done it quite like that. Um, it really did reshape the market. You go to any uh, brewery of, of any size, and you'll likely find an ex-Brewdog employee in, in a senior position. Um, uh, you know, it, and some of these people speaking out against the business now have, have gone on to do great things in the beer industry who got their start there. That's not excusing them of any, any mm-hmm. bad behavior, um, but they are uh, a crucial part of, of the story of modern British beer. 
And quite frankly, the book wouldn't make sense if I didn't give them those initial pages. But I didn't give them the privilege of being the first beer in the book that went to Fine Ales Yarl. It was very important that the if the book is about joyfulness and that experience of beer, then the first beer I'm going to put in it is one that I absolutely adore. And so I highly recommend folks uh, get out and read this book. I think it's it's obviously beautifully shot, beautifully written, introspective, and as you said, of you know, it's a lot of first person, you know, which is a little bit different. And and frankly, it's kind of a very welcome breath of fresh air to to see that as opposed to so much of beer writing, especially about about either brewery profiles or beer profiles is such retread and it, it doesn't really break a lot of new ground. And we, you know, get a half a dozen of these encyclopedic books per year that seem to come out that don't really amount to much in my, in my experience, but this does tell a story. And I think it is an interesting one. I, and I love the concept that it is meant to be read from start to finish, as opposed to, you could certainly break into individual profiles, but reading it from, from cover to cover does provide a very different type of experience. And I think it's one that, you know, you should try, you know, American beer, beer enthusiasts, uh, the book may be a little bit more difficult to get than those, uh, those abroad, but it still can be done relatively easily. I'd highly recommend getting out and reading it. I appreciate that coming from you, Andy, because I do have a, a copy of Great American Craft Beer that's been sat on my shelf for about 10 years, actually. So uh, it means a lot. I appreciate it. I cannot recommend Arrived enough. Killer customer support, affordable, ability to start tabs without holding cards, keeps track of ounces sold for state reporting, two different ways to report tips. The list goes on. It's amazing, says Tracy Bardigan of Firemaker Brewing in Atlanta. In terms of uh, writing and sort of in kind of wrapping up here, um, recently you have had you know, some online discussions. And again, it's almost like your social media sometimes is like a reading a diary or, or getting just some direct insights into you personally about uh, beer writing awards. And I have somewhat strong opinions on beer writing awards. I don't particularly, I, I used to early in my career participate in very early you know, edition of the North American Guild of Beer Writers many, many moons ago, not like what Brian Roth has now done with the modern iteration, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, I was, you know, shared a stage with Michael Jackson many years ago when he would come over here and wipe us all, all over and steal all of our awards, uh, rightfully so. But in, in more recent years, and I, I can't even speak why, I, I don't participate in the Guild Awards, you know, very often. Every once in a while, I will. Um, but it just, I, I just sort of not sure how I feel about others judging my work in that context, or it just doesn't sit well with me. And I, and I can't say I've explored it enough to know exactly why, but you have done some, you know, exploration recently, and you had been up for, you know, beer writer, essentially beer writer of the year in Britain multiple times and have been, you know, I'm not sure if you'll get the reference here, but you're sort of feeling a little bit like the Susan Lucci of uh, of British beer because she was someone for those who don't don't recall was nominated dozens upon dozens of times for for daytime Emmy work for tele for a classic television role she had on an American soap and never won until I think eventually she finally did but for yourself you you sort of seem to wrestle with it and, and come to the sort of raw conclusion lately that you don't necessarily wish to participate or maybe you can't be in attendance at the at the events themselves 
so can you walk us through, and I apologize if it's, it's a little too soon for it, but just the experience of, of what has gone on with your experience with the, the British you know, Beer Writer Guild Awards. So uh, I'm glad you brought it up, actually, because I've not really had much chance to discuss it other than online. Although I will say I've had a great uh, phone conversation with Emma Inch, who is the chair of the British Guild of Beer Writers. I was very disappointed this year. Actually, I was angry this year because um, I've not had um, no success. I've I've won a few silvers, three silvers over nine years of entering. And, you know, when I got my first silver in 2015, that was a real one of the things that pushed me to going uh, pro. And it's one of the reasons I'm mortified that I've not managed to sort of convert that into a trophy. And some of my best friends are, are my peers are beer writers, people like um, Johnny Garrett at the Craft Beer Channel and, and uh, Lily Waits, who I mentioned earlier, and Claire Bullen, who is the editor-in-chief of Good Beer Hunting. I've watched them pick up trophies. And yet every year I, I do uh, get nominated, which I am very happy to, uh, but don't seem to quite uh, get over the line. I think it's become kind of this sort of golden goose for me where I fit, there's a part of me that thinks I can't kick on to the next stage of my career um, without one of these tankards on my shelf, which is ridiculous. Um, and, it, it, you know, what I have to remember and what I've been reminded by others is that at the Guild Awards, it's it's not judged by other beer writers. It's, it's guest judges. It's a different panel every year. And it's you know, what's on the table and they pick what they like the best at the end of the day. Um, and for some reason, it's bizarre for me why I don't seem to be able to tick the boxes in the UK because I've won, I had mm-hmm. more than twice the amount of success at the North American Guild Awards than I have at the British one. We're, we're um, just not very good over here. I don't believe I don't believe that for for a second. Um, I think one of the reasons I do well at the American Awards is it's judged by other beer writers who and beer writers love reading beer writers' mm-hmm. work, um, and and I think uh, you know that comes back to it being objective. One of the other things about the British Awards is it's, it has big cash prizes, like like um, year for a writer that you know it's not a lucrative career to pick up a couple of thousand pounds for right. a, a couple of trophies. That's that's going to change your year. Uh, for you in, in in terms of how comfortable you are and, and and having money in the bank account gives you freedom to work on more exciting projects as a writer like books um and it, and maybe having that award um you know beer writer of the year book of the year for which I, you know no offense to pete brown congrats but i was absolutely <laughs> robbed by you this year and i'm never going to let you live it down um and and i think he knows it deep down as well but hey it's what the judges went for um you know, part of me you know, a lot of this comes down to beer writing. I see beer writing as a genre of food writing. And something I, that Pellicle is invested in is trying to get people in the in, who like reading about food, who like reading about wine, which I know is this food especially has this huge audience. And I want those people to read, you know, the reason we approach beer writing in a different way is we don't want people to be alienated by beer writing. It should be seen. I've seen this in the US where, where magazines have have kind of crossed over into this food space and i've never seen that in the uk um and part of me is thinking if i pick up a few guild awards in the uk then maybe a few um food magazines some bigger publications will will pick me up and I, you know if you look at someone who the most successful person uh, in the awards pete brown he has achieved that yeah and yeah. as as a career writer part of me is like if i get a few of these on on the resume then that'll help me. Ultimately, that is 
it's actually nonsense. You know, I've kind of dug myself into a hole. The real reward is having a great um, audience who who read and respect your work and come, you know, when you publish something, they'll come back and read it again. The real reward is having editors that will, if you haven't pitched them in a while, who will email you and say, have you got anything for me? You know, because they know you deliver clean copy and on time. Um, you know, that's, uh, but I, but as much as I love that I have those things, it would be also really nice if I also had a trophy on my shelf. Um, and so uh, it's probably bad for me, but I'm, I'm going to keep, plugging away uh, I, I think if I, I do an injustice to myself if I stopped entering and um uh, and you know eventually uh I'll uh, I'll figure it out but I'm not writing for one thing that helps with losing uh, basically I've had like six years in a row where I've had loads of nominations without a trophy um it helps with uh I'm not writing to get an award um I'm, I'm writing for my audience and uh if the judges like it, they like it. And I, I think I'm, I'm starting to put this distance between myself and it, um, which is which is good and healthy. Um, and, and the real focus going forward would be just, you know, focusing on producing good quality work that people enjoy reading. The inevitability of disappointment, you know, I think stems probably from, it's, it's probably proportional to how much of yourself you've put into your work in the course of a year. If you are just kind of fly by night and throw together some pieces and win or don't win, then maybe it doesn't impact you. But you feel as if you're someone who puts a lot of themselves into their work and, 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 and it has to feel in that way, almost personally judging. But I am not here to be play a role of a therapist in any way, shape or form. But I'd like to either encourage you to continue to participate or, or certainly not take it as any kind of personal knock because you have achieved a great deal in this industry in a reasonably short window of time. And you're a fantastic voice that I look forward to reading for, for, and listening to for many years to come. Uh, and I don't think you should allow you know, anything, especially something as innocuous as awards to, to, though I can certainly understand every time I lose an award, which is somewhat frequently when I would participate, it would, it would be a bit of a punch. And I think maybe that's why, maybe I'm convincing myself the other way here. Maybe that's why I don't do it anymore. I find it too personal. Never mind. I take it back. Stop participating in these awards. <laughs> They're really rubbish. Uh, but I want to just you know, tell you, continue. You're doing great stuff, and 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 you're doing great stuff with the work of other writers. And I was very pleased to see Pelico writers pick up awards and on both sides there. Uh, and we'll, you know, look forward to reading that for for many years to come. Um, there's a lot, you know, we've taken a lot of time here and I, I've taken longer than I had planned and I could keep this discussion going for quite some time, but just to cover just a few shorter topics here, you know, perhaps not any less lesser topics, but we've talked about it a couple of times here, you sort of obliquely referencing, you know, what in the States we're calling almost a reckoning, whether it has to do with discussions of inclusion and diversity, uh, equity, and, and conversations about how the centering, of, uh, especially of, of sort of the white male in the American beer scene, uh, to the grand exclusion of, of many others. Um, you know, this year we we that has sort of really come to the forefront in the last year to two years, um, and we're seeing you know as you noted for Brienne Allen's Rat Magnet Instagram account, uh, and there have certainly been Charlotte Cook in the in the UK and and a lot of uh, and a lot of other voices from the UK to Denmark, and they're all important in and raising you know you know sort of fascinating issues that have long been you know too long been suppressed. 
what has your reaction just been on a, on a sort of almost 30,000 foot level to, to what you've seen play out in the last year and a half? I think, um, you know, it's a lot, like a lot of people initially, it was, it was quite shocking. One thing I did was I, I, I stayed up late till like one, two in the morning, reading everything, like reading and, and digesting every single message, uh, because I realized that this, this, these were not isolated incidents. This is a reflection of, and it's not just a reflection of beer. It's just a reflection of, of toxic masculinity and, and the way men and, and businesses behave and think they can treat employees. And, um, I also have, you know, working as a writer in the beer industry, most of the people I know work in beer. Um, and I know a lot of, um, women who work in beer who really found that these stories were coming out and just then people not really doing anything. And, you know, I, I think, as I said earlier, it's about decentering yourself to an extent, because I still have to recognize that I do have pellicle and, and I have a responsibility with that to try and, you know, run coverage of, you know, we're, we're not a news outlet. So we didn't run stories of this is happening, breaking news. We, we have things in, in the tank that we will eventually publish because that's, that's, you know, we want to be true to our content and, and not, not knee jerk. Uh, stuff but you know i was i remember being interviewed um for about all this by beth demon um i think it was for a a, a vine pair piece um but she asked me how i felt about it and i was like you know i feel terrible because you know when i was in my 20s i you know had groups of male i guess quote unquote friends and 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 engaged in what you would call toxic masculinity because that is how you, that you felt you had to even if you felt terrible doing it and so i think for a lot of people there was this sense of guilt because you knew it existed and you you didn't really, you know, you've seen it at, at a beer festival perhaps, and you've not gone up to someone and said, you don't do this because you're worried of the confrontation and what might escalate from that. And I think now hopefully people are realizing that um, the damage that even the tiniest microaggression can do and the longstanding, not, not just to women, but to, to all um, minorities. And it's, it's horrible to like pigeonhole every, every, culture and beer as, as a minority but i'm talking about black people and asian people and lgbtq people who love beer and just don't have the same experience as as many of us um including the two of ourselves uh because because they they look different and that's um it's been kind of horrible to see the way it's played out because what i've realized is i've i've had other people in the beer industry saying the, the beer industry saying they don't like the way this has played out. They don't know why people have had to call out people on social media. It's a, it's a witch hunt, which it's a, it, and that word in itself is, is language that is minimal marginalizing to, to women. Um, and what I realized is, you know, speaking to people like Brienne and, and Fanny Wandel in Denmark and uh, Kate Bailey, who produced the McKellar documentary with um, super cool toxic workplace, which is a, a must must listen to anyone who who loves beer uh, because it's, it's just the quality of the reporting is next level really um is realizing that they took to these platforms to social media because they'd been screaming for years and no one was listening and so they kept doing it until they found a, the nerve to pinch and if people are feeling uncomfortable about it it's because they know deep down that it's that something's not right um i think it's been a difficult year but i i see uh positive uh changes coming and businesses building and things one thing that frustrates me is there's still a, a lack of transparency you know 
I see people brewing these brave noise beers. And then I'm like, well, I want to go on your website and find your code of conduct. And they're like, well, you just scan the QR code on the can. You can read our code of conduct. No, put it front and center mm-hmm. of the website, tweet it out. Like, um, I, I, you know, I think there needs to be, people need to take more responsibility and uh, for the transparency of, of their actions. But there's also organizations um, in the UK. I want to give a shout out to Birim Collective um, run by Helen Smith and Rachel Hendry um, who are, you know, they're publishing articles as well, but they are really invested in the work of, and it's one of those catch-all terms I don't like, but DE and I, diversity, yeah. equity, inclusion, and, and investing in, in the beer industry to, to make it a more welcoming place for, for all people. It's happening. Um, uh, there needs to be more investment. It, I, I feel quite invested in it because I know quite a few people who've been personally affected by some of these stories who've never, you know, until this happened, I had no idea. We'd never talked about it. Um, and there's probably many more stories yet to emerge, unfortunately. But I think one thing I'll, I'll say again, unlike the US where you did see some sweeping changes, some people stepped down in the UK, uh, there was a lot of ignorance towards what was happening and, and a lack of uh, responsibility taken. And um, hopefully, um, I don't want to attack anyone that's done that because no one in the beer industry has really had to deal with anything like it before. But hopefully people will acknowledge um, this and, and listen. I think this is a long answer, I know, but I think what happened with McKellar Festival and there was eight UK breweries that sort of got together and released a statement saying we're going to go, but we're going to do all these talks. Right. And then there was a, there was this backlash, um, and uh, and I was you know I was one of the people that that was part of that backlash. And then twenty four hours later, they said it was all very messy. They said, "Oh, we're gonna we're not gonna go," but they did show intent. They wanted to have talks. They wanted to do things, but they did it very knee jerk and didn't. I think what's happened. One of the problems with the way this is playing out is that people are in the position where they feel like they need to react without realizing that they can communicate that they're doing stuff as long as that that communication channel is open. And if they're honest and say, this is going to take us some time to figure out, we need resources, we need people, but this is what we're doing stage by stage. Um, I think there are some developments happening that will hopefully mean we see that, but to any breweries listening to this, like communicate this stuff. There are people, if you, if it's happened to you and you haven't seen anything about it in, weeks or months there are people sat at home going well i haven't heard anything from them so i'm just going to not buy their beer so people need to talk about it it's much like me and my mental health as we as we talked about earlier it needs to be you can't internalize these things because they'll just get worse and worse you've said that on you know on this podcast and others that this is the business that you want to be in for the rest of your life that you wish to be you know continue to be a beer writer and a drinks writer and and covering the space and Maybe Pellicle has a, a, it's almost like Pretty Things Beer and Ale project. You know, Dan and Martha always intended it to have an end, end life, you know, to be, it was a project. It was not a company, uh, was their idea. And I sort of was struck that, you know, with your saying that's about similar about Pellicle. What, you know, how do you keep inspiration in what you're doing and what do you want to do in the future? I think that that's something I think about quite a lot because I've definitely just gone through a phase of burnout with mm-hmm. the pandemic and, and what we just spoke about. Um, and, you know, just the grind of freelancing, just, you know, where's that next invoice coming from? It's, it's hard work. And if you look at a lot of freelance beer writers this time of year, they'll be tweeting things like, like 
how tired they are, how burnt out they are. Um, but the one thing that's really important to me is, is as I said earlier, putting this is why I put my enthusiasm, at, you know, I'm an enthusiast first and a beer writer second because something I've got quite good at is going to the pub with friends. And I used to be analyzing everything about the pub and, and the pint I'm drinking. And I guess that's still there, but I, I, there's a boundary between that and the acknowledgement that I am having a, a, a nice time. And that is what my focus is mm-hmm. on at the moment. And, and you know, I could be having a nice time and then I could go home and tomorrow morning and think about, okay, okay, I had that pint. It wasn't great. Let's think about why that was. But in the moment I'm like, actually, no, I'm just having a nice time with friends. Um, uh, and you know, what I thought I thought about what I want to do in the next year, um, because I always have this desire to do something new and Pellicles getting to that sort of difficult third year. And I've acknowledged to myself that, that I need to be, you know, it, it is a project, but it's at the stage where it, it requires care and attention. And sometimes there's days where I'm, you know, I've got a pile of work to edit and I'm like, I don't really feel motivated. I want to do my own thing but I've acknowledged to myself that this is, this is a project that's worthwhile investing in. So I'm really going to try and uh, invest as much time in Pellicle as possible, uh, make it more sustainable for not just the people we pay, but what we pay ourselves. We do have a small retainer that I hope to increase. So it's more viable for us to spend time working on the magazine. Um, And so that's, you know, the next 12 months is really just continuing to build on that. I have hopefully got another couple of books in the works um, that, you know, pitches have been sent um, that would not see the light of day till 2023. But, you know, so there are some longer term projects for me there, but just next year is definitely going to be about sort of getting the head down and just getting on with some, some good, honest work, making sure the quality is good. I think something I always talk about with the others at Pellicle is consistency and how like, the, you know, this consistency of style and publishing an article every Wednesday is so crucial. Um, you know, talked about my podcast and how it comes out sporadically. That's really frustrating to me because I seem to get three out in a quick succession of time. Then I have all this work and I'm like, well, I can't do a podcast. Yeah. And then it's, you know, three months later, I publish an episode. And it's like, oh, it's back down there. Not as many people are listening to it because it's fallen off people's radar. Mm-hmm. So that momentum and consistency is something I hope to build into all of the things I do um next year and and just uh keep on keeping on like i say like i think beer is fascinating and i think um in the 10 years i've been writing about it i've barely scratched the surface in terms of what's out there in terms of who to speak to and and you know something that does frustrate me about beer writing is you know and i say this as we're publishing a story similar to this on pellicle on wednesday you know the old narrative of the home brewer going pro making the beers we want to make which you know, but sometimes amid all that, there is a there is a more interesting story on the next layer. Not that not every brewery you visit is going to be a Dan and Martha mm-hmm. and have all this weird and wonderful stuff, but every brewery you visit will have some validity and in, in interest to the story, and people will be uh, enamored to that story. And I think that there's a that comes back to the responsibility of reporting. Um, something that I'm quite into in Pellicle is trying to commission stories about breweries that that would haven't been written about that you've never heard of. We've got quite a few of those lined up for the next few months. Um, and they're breweries that might not be as good at marketing themselves as some of the breweries that get 
get all the hits, but we think make wonderful beer and have really interesting stories. So that's part of that getting getting our heads down and and um, it's you know doing the work um, and amid all of that, trying to now we have our feet under the table, commission some stories that are you know now we have writers like David Jesuderson uh, is a great example. We've got Lily Waite on editorial. Um, people who write critically exceptionally well and having the budget and giving them the time in the room to say here's a big story like go at it how much time do you need um and uh seeing what happens with those matt thank you for being here for for opening up for talking to us about all these different topics i am very much looking forward to seeing what both you personally as a writer and you as an editor through the lens of Pellicle bring to, you know, craft, craft beer writing and beer writing and drinks writing and food and travel over the next year and hopefully many more years to come before any kind of sunset. I think you're bringing a lot of great voices uh, to the discussion. And uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Andy. This has been Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. Go to arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrive consultant, and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff efficiency, and bottom line. Chances are a switch to Arrived will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's Arrived with a Y. A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Arrived is the point of service that works for you.